0: Kind of very broadly speaking, at both of these books. Um, And this morning we've got a pretty big, long jump to make because where we left off was 1 Samuel 24 when David was in the cave fleeing from Saul. Last Sunday we actually looked at a psalm that David wrote when he was in that very place. So, in a sense, we're still in the cave and we've got to get all the way over to 2 Samuel chapter 6, uh, which is where we're picking up the story today. And uh, there's some important key events that we just need to be aware of that will bring us up to Second Samuel six. So just very briefly, we'll just kind of I'm going to put away the, the small detail brush, kind of bring out the roller, if you will, and just walk us through a few of these chapters to bring us up to speed to where David is today in our story. So moving on from First Samuel 24, we arrive at First Samuel 25, and. Uh, One of the most significant things that happens in that chapter is the death of Samuel the priest. He was a very significant character right at the very beginning of 1 Samuel. uh, And we see here, uh, close to the end of the book, he passes away. Um, Obviously, a significant period of time has passed. The author is also telling us that David's family is expanding. Uh, In 1 Samuel chapter 25, David acquires two new wives... I know this sounds a little crazy, but in fact David had eight wives in total, um, and to us that sounds really crazy and out there, but it, at this, and it's, it's certainly not, it, it's not um, condoned. Uh, it was never God's plan uh, for polygamy, or bigamy as this is called. Um, never God's plan, but at that time this was in fact commonplace, especially for a person of such influence uh, and wealth and power as a king. In fact, the more wives that a king had, the more powerful and influential. Sometimes the marriages were purely political as well. So we see that David already had a wife, Michael, but at the end of chapter 25, David acquires these two new wives, and because David had fled from Saul, as you would recall, and his wife, Michael, had actually helped him in that, um, but he's now out of the picture and has been for several years, we see that Saul um, gives Michael away to another, another man, Paltiel. Okay, so then in chapter 26, there's an incident where uh, David, for the second time, has the opportunity, he is still fleeing from Saul, funnily enough, after chapter 24, and he's fleeing from Saul in the Israel region, in the Israeli region, Um, and because of that, Saul is still after him, and there's a second account of, um, of David sparing Saul's life. And then um, David obviously is just absolutely over, (laughs) running away from Saul and fleeing from Saul. And uh, he actually moves in to live amongst the Philistines. Now, the really interesting thing about this is he goes to Gath. Now, you might recall from 1 Samuel 16 that Gath is where Goliath was from. David actually goes to live in Gath. And amazingly he is allowed to live there amongst the philistines because he is fleeing from saul and because he is in a sense a threat to the kingdom of israel at this time the philistines figure that well it can't help to have him among us and in fact david ends up becoming the personal bodyguard of king achish of Gath, uh, which is really quite remarkable um Then um, jump over a little bit further. So David's there for about a year and four months amongst the Philistines. He's again waiting for God's time. At the very end of 1 Samuel in chapter 31, Saul dies. He's in battle and uh, he's injured and he ends up falling on his own sword. And we're told that Saul and three of his sons die. Uh, One of those sons we know is Jonathan. And so uh, in chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, David is lamenting the death of Saul and of Jonathan. Uh, He is also then anointed the king of Judah. So we have two tribes in Israel. We have the northern and the southern tribe. And David is anointed um, the king of Judah, which is the southern tribe. And he's living in Hebron which is like a city in, um, in Judah. Saul has a, a one surviving son called Ish-boshesh, and he becomes the new king of Israel for a couple of years. So he takes over Saul. So um, David doesn't replace Saul at this point. Saul's remaining son does. He lasts for two years, he then loses his own life. There's a couple of chapters there, uh, chapters three and four, or oh, sorry, chapters two and four in 2 Samuel that are concerned with this ongoing war between the house of David and the house of Saul. And it's not literally Saul and David fighting, it's the commander of their armies. Uh, and so the commander of Saul's army is Abner and the commander of David's army is Joab. And so these two armies are kind of going at each other for a couple of chapters. And then... Um, ish loses his life and that then opens up the way for David to be made king over all of Israel. And we see that um, quite epic event happening in chapter 5. And in chapter 5 David conquers Jerusalem which is a city of Israel but had been occupied by the Jebusites. And uh, because of its geographical location it was actually on a hill and made it very, very difficult for enemies to come and attack. Um, the city had not yet been captured. And so David does capture that and, uh, and that is where, that sort of becomes the, the capital city of Israel. He needs to move out of Hebron, which is in Judah, so that he's not biased. He needs to be, he needs to be in neutral territory so he can now reign and bring together both uh, the southern and the northern kingdom of Israel. So Israel is now, united under David's kingship. And then, interestingly, again, in 2 Samuel chapter 5, we read about two distinct battles with the Philistines. Uh, the thing that is significant in both of these occasions is that David specifically goes, and the Bible says, inquires of the Lord. That means he seeks God's face as to how he is tactically to go about doing this. And God guides him, and, and, and the Israelites are successful in defeating the Philistines. Um, So, it would be be a shame to miss these few key verses in chapter 5 that really highlight um, the culmination of David becoming king of all Israel. So, let's just quickly have a look. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, we are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people Israel and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord and they anointed David king over Israel. David was thirty-eight, sorry, 30 years old when he became king and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months and in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. That's a lot for you to take in. I appreciate that, but that just brings us up to Second Samuel, Samuel, chapter six, which is where we pick up the story today. If you haven't already, I really invite and encourage you to consider reading through the books of First and Second Samuel. They're really interesting books it's very good reading and uh, you'll just get so much more out of out of this series i trust many of you are already doing that but i hope that's helpful so today we're at second chap- samuel chapter 6 and really what today's chapter is all about is worship it is hard to underscore the significance of this chapter in the history of israel's worship Um, which we as God's people continue doing today. So I don't think it would be too far a stretch to say that the music that forms a part of our worship services every week as we gather as God's people and indeed uh, as all of God's people gather in churches just like this one, music plays such a prominent part in the worship service. I don't think it would be too far a stretch to say that the chapter we're looking at today is in many respects the origin of worshipping God with music and song, celebrating the presence of God. It's a very significant chapter, a very significant chapter for the history of worship amongst God's people. Now, it centres around something called the Ark. And it's not to be confused with this Ark. We're talking about the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is a very significant, um, I don't want to call it a thing, uh, but it's a very significant thing. (laughs) Uh, And it, it originates back to Exodus 25. When Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt and they have received the Ten Commandments and God is going to dwell amongst his people. And Bezalel, who, is the, who makes um, the Ark of the Covenant, he was a skilled craftsman and the instructions are there written out. Uh, in Exodus. And, uh, and so the purpose of the Ark of the Covenant was to manifest the very presence of God. And the, the Israelites would carry this Ark of the Covenant with them wherever they went, and it symbolized the very power and presence of God. Now, it was originally built to house the two tablets that contained the Ten Commandments. But we see in Hebrews chapter 9 that eventually uh, its contents also included a pot of manna and Aaron's rod or staff. And these things uh, went eventually to the temple that Solomon built into the Holy of Holies and it symbolised God's presence... The contents of this box symbolise God's faithfulness in giving his people, well, yes, his law, but essentially his word, which leads and guides them, uh, as well as the, the manner, which nourishes and, and, and you know, keeps them going. And the rod, I guess, in a sense, signifies the leadership of Aaron leading in a priestly role um, God's people. Hugely significant. Now, um, the ark is going to be brought to Jerusalem today in, second chap- in 2 Samuel 6. Um, it's had a long history. For about 20 years now, the ark has been in Judah. Now that David has defeated the Jebusites, has overtaken Jerusalem, and has set Jerusalem up as the political and the geographical centre of Israel where he will rule. He wants the worship of Yahweh to be central and he wants the presence of Yahweh to be central from where he rules. And so today's story is kind of about the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant from Judah to Jerusalem. It's about a 28-kilometre journey and it will be made partly, it will all be made by foot, from the people, but the first journey, uh, it's, it's, put, it, it's transported on a cart with oxen, and that doesn't go well. And we'll talk about that in a moment, but then it's carried, which is how it was meant to be, and it does arrive in Jerusalem. Now, this is the very presence of God. And, and the worship, and, and we see the response to the presence of God is is worship and there's some different responses that we can we can look at. If you enjoy reading your Bibles and you want some more context and some more detail, 1 Chronicles 15 and 16 um, give a lot more detail into the transportation of the ark. Um, they only it only recounts the second journey where they get it right. And then in chapter 16 we actually hear the content of, of David's, some of David's worship in, in 1 Samuel 6. We just, we kind of see David's dancing and singing, but we actually get some of the content in 1 Chronicles 16. So this sermon will actually make a whole lot more sense to you if you read 1 Chronicles 15 and 16 later on. I really encourage you to do so. So the first, so as I said, we've got this journey and it's sort of taken in two parts So 1 Samuel 6, 1 to 11 is kind of the first journey and it doesn't go well. Um, And then we'll take a look at the second journey. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, and many other musical instruments. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the Ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark. Now, just practically speaking, I'm not going to assume that everyone in this room understands what a threshing floor is. So the threshing floor could have been about the size of this room. And what a threshing floor was, so let's say you're in a huge paddock surrounded by, let's just say, some kind of grain. Uh, the threshing floor was actually kind of the centre where all the grain would come and they would literally bash the grain uh, to, to divide it from the husk. And so it was kind of a flat area. Now, it makes sense why the oxen who were carrying the ark, so it's on this, let's think of a big kind of wagon, and you've got the oxen pulling it along and they're going through the field and they come to this big threshing floor that's constantly being whacked. So my impression is that, you know, there was probably some undulation and that is probably why the oxen tripped and the, the ark became unsettled and began to fall. Now, what is going on here with Uzzah and God striking him down? This is not a very marketable God. And, uh, and it seems very harsh for the modern reader. It really does. Uh, I, I, I don't argue with that. We need to understand a little bit about the history and the origin and the rules and regulations that were given regarding the ark because we're not just talking about some gold box we're actually dealing with the very presence of God he allowed his presence to dwell in the ark in Exodus 25:14 very clear instruction is given on how the ark is to be transported. And it has to be carried. There are poles that go on either side of the ark and those poles must rest on the shoulders of Levitical priests. Levitical priests were, if you like, men of the temple. Or, or in today's language, they were men of the cloth. They were people whose lives were devoted to to the worship of Yahweh. They were were music leaders. They were were modern-day worship leaders. Uh, They were servants of the temple. And so firstly, it needed to be carried on the shoulders of those who had great reverence and understanding of the holiness of God. In Numbers 4.15, there is a command given that the ark is never to be touched. And that is why it had to be carried by these poles. Um, And so these instructions were given. So that's the first thing that we need to understand. Another really interesting piece of information that gives a bit more context is in 1 Samuel chapter 6, before David's time. David's not around at this point yet. The Philistines um, are defeating the Israelites and they know that this is kind of the Israelites' prized possession. They take possession of the, the Ark of the Covenant and they take it back to their hometown. And they have it in a temple with their god called Dagon. And there's the story where Dagon the god continues to fall down. He's like an idol and smash. And, and they move it into different places and really bad things happen. It's, it's a sense, there's a sense of they've been cursed. People break out with all kinds of skin boils and things do not go well for the Philistines for the seven months that they have the Ark of the Covenant. And they decide very wisely that they need to get it back to Israel. That's where it belongs. <laughs> um, but they don't have... Exodus 25 and Numbers 4, right? So they, they come up with their own way of transporting the ark. And guess how they do it? They put it on an oxen, they put it on a wagon, and it's carried with oxen. Now, no one is killed because nobody touches it. But the mode of transportation is wrong. But it's the Philistines... They're not expected to transport it correctly. The Israelites are, because they're God's people and they have God's instructions. So, in 2 Samuel chapter 6, what is really interesting is that the Israelites are actually modeling the way that the Philistines transported the ark, not the way God had described. Uh, So, this is very significant. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, the writer goes to great extent with those two battles against the Philistines to let us know that before battle, David inquired of the Lord how he should go about it. There is nothing in 2 Samuel chapter 6 about David inquiring of the Lord about how to make this transportation. And the chronicler in chapter 15 highlights this, that that is the reason that David had not sought God before making this decision. So they transport it on the new cart. Now, the judgment is brought on Uzzah, who loses his life, but it is also brought on David. David would have been significantly humiliated. He prepares 30,000 men for the transportation of this ark. And no doubt, all of Israel at this point was waiting For the very presence of God to come into Jerusalem the first time, and it didn't happen. Hugely humiliating for David, and we see that his response is one of first anger and fear. What is going on here is the holiness of God. God's presence is so holy and so powerful. And, 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 and we can't be flippant with it. And, and a new thing is about to happen in Israel. The kingdoms have been united. A new king has been thrown. It is the start of a new era and a new reign. And in a sense, God is wanting to make sure that his people are aware of his holiness and the power of his holiness. So then the Ark kind of takes a half-time break. David doesn't want to go any further. So for three months, the Ark of the Covenant dwells in the home of a person called Obed-Edom. Obed-Edom is a Levitical priest. He is, in fact, a person who would be able to carry, or, you know, with the poles, And so he's a very safe and trustworthy person. And so the ark uh, kind of resides at his house for three months. And then it's round two. Take two. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. When those who were, notice, carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, he sacrificed a bull and a fatted calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. This is how it was supposed to be carried, and that's how it was being carried the second time around. It's hard for us to imagine the sheer joy and delight that David, and indeed all of Israel, is experiencing in this moment. They are ministering before the very presence of God and they are bringing the presence of God to the centre of Israel. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and sent it in its place, inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread a cake of dates and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women, and all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Michal, daughter of Saul came out to meet him and said, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I will be held in honour. And Michael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. That's 2 Samuel chapter 6. Now, as I mentioned, this chapter is primarily concerned with worship, And there really are four main characters that get airtime in this text. And I think that they allow us to see four different responses to the presence of Yahweh. Uh, The writer is very clever in this chapter. There's a lot of sequence. So kind of if you think about the fact that there are two scenes of transportation, one that doesn't go so well and one that does... In both occasions, there are two characters. Uh, For one character, it works out really badly. For another character, it works out really well. And the same thing applies with the second time. It works out really well for one person and not so well for the other. So we just examine these responses. The first person that we see is Uzzah. And I think the key verse for Uzzah is verse 7. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. So, when we think about worship, what we see here is that we cannot become so familiar with God that we begin to treat God with a familiar kind of approach. God is holy, God is the creator of the world. And we can't enter his presence casually, flippantly, um, carelessly. Uzzah disregarded the word of the Lord. He didn't follow the instructions of God's word. And I think there's a connection here between disregarding God's word and offering casual, flippant worship. We need to be keen students of God's word because it instructs us how to offer ourselves to God correctly. We are to come to God with humility and reverence for who he is. Humility and reverence, as we will soon see, does not result uh, in um, unmoving, lifeless worship. In fact, it results in quite the opposite. The second person who kind of interacts with the very presence of Yahweh is obed Edom, who I mentioned was a Levitical priest, a worshipper, a worship leader. He, on the other hand, knew God's Word because he was a temple instructor. He was a worshipper of God and he knew how to worship God with reverence and awe. And so with Obed-Edom, we see blessing. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. As modern readers, when it says household, we might just think of our little house with our immediate family, but this is so much grander. His whole household would mean all of his servants, uh, extended family, and we're living in an agricultural time. All of his crops, for example, if he had such things, were blessed. It was an incredible blessing. In and, and a very short time frame, three months, but God's blessing prospered him so much that it was, it was obvious to all. Reverence for God leads to blessing from God. Reverence for God leads to blessing from God. Now we've spoken many times about this. Again, in this culture and this time, God certainly did bless people with fertility and abundance. And that is no doubt some of the blessing that is going on here. But God's blessing is the smile of God upon our lives doesn't mean that life is rosy and that everything is just fantastic and we enjoy life with no cares. That's not the sign of God's blessing. The sign of God's blessing, according to the Beatitudes, is to have the smile of God upon your life, regardless of your circumstances. Reverence for God leads to blessing from God. The third character is Michael, or Mikael. This is a rather, sa- a rather sad situation. As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, daughter of Saul... Now, notice that she is not commented here as being the wife of David. Rather, she is the daughter of Saul. Uh, She watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. I think Michael... And she had a a difficult time, if if we are sympathetic to her. um, Just think a little bit about her story. She was, she was given to David in marriage after he defeated 200 Philistines. Um, she was kind of a, pr- a prize for David's macho showmanship, if you will. I don't know what their marriage was like. The Scriptures don't tell us that. But she did help David escape from her father. Um, and then she obviously had a period of time where David was out in the wilderness being chased by her father, Then Saul gives her to another man. Then, when David becomes king again, he reclaims Michael as his wife. And the husband that she, the second husband that she had, we're told, comes chasing after her, weeping. So, what we can infer from that comment is that the second marriage that she had was actually a very loving marriage. And she was probably very happy. So, this woman. probably already despised David in her heart because he was acquiring her as another one of his wives. Yes, rightfully his, um, but it's understandable to think that she may have already despised David in her heart before this incident. But I think we see Michael as the daughter of Saul, as someone who sees worship as something that it's very much about proper decorum, it's very much about outward appearance. There is a certain way that things need to be done and this is not how it's done for royalty. So she, as the daughter of a king, Saul, uh, is all about the, the royal way that things should be done. And, uh, and the way that David is behaving before the presence of God is, is just, frankly, embarrassing to her. And so we see a spirit of contemptuous nature, Michael's life, uh, all the, those things that I just described, those circumstances were outside of her control. These negative things have happened to her and they could have turned her to become a bitter woman and she brought that bitterness uh, uh, in her worship. And so here's another illustration or example. We can come to God... worship him casually and flippantly with disregard for his word. We can come to God knowing his word and following his word and receive the blessing of God or we can come to God with a spirit of contempt perhaps to God because my life has not worked out the way I wanted it to. I think there are a lot of people here who would say, my life has not worked out how I want it to and frankly, God, I'm upset and I'm angry with you and I I bring a contemptuous spirit to you because of that. And there's a warning there for us, we see here in Michael. And um, uh, she's barren for the rest of her life. Now, we don't know, does that mean that David and Michael may not have had relations? Uh, but it it also may mean that, What God is doing here is is making sure that Saul's dynasty is finished, it's complete. This old way of doing things is no longer going to be the way. All of Saul's sons are now dead and Michael bears no children and so the, the, the lineage is going to come from David now in David's family. So that's the third aspect. Of course, in King David, we see... An exemplary model of worship. Wearing, now, a linen ephod. Um, again, not going to assume that everyone knows what that is. Uh, there are two types of ephods um, there is one that is an, an undergarment, and there is one that is an overgarment. The undergarment is a linen ephod, and it's a little bit like underwear. Okay, it's modern-day underwear. Um, it's 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 like a dress that comes down to about here. It's white linen and it's sleeveless, and priests would wear that underneath the over ephod. And the over ephod was a royal robe. It was purple. It was very regal. It was very grand. Um, so if you're going to do something very physical, you would not be wearing the thick, purple, um, jewel adorned robe you would throw it off and you would wear the undergarment now david in this moment is dressed as a priest in private think about that a priest would not go in public in a linen ephod that's kind of the underwear but in a sense david is now david is the king of all israel he is dressed as a priest and he is dressed in the garment of a priest in private Uh, And so what we see here is David's, in a sense, private worship being expressed publicly. And the reason being is that David is, David is, before the presence of Yahweh, David is not the king of all Israel. David is the servant of Yahweh first and foremost. And this moment in David's life is hugely significant. It's probably been 15 or so years since that very first anointing back in 1 Samuel chapter 6. Think of the journey that David has had up to this point. For six, seven years, being chased by Saul in the desert, living as an outlaw, then um, being anointed as the king the first time of the southern kingdom, but still having this battle going on between uh, the house of David and the house of Saul, And then in this moment, all of God's promises for David are yes and amen. This is the most amazing, joyful moment in David's life. And the scripture tells us he is dancing before the Lord with all his might. What an incredible picture of worship. And his response to Michael in their conversation is, I will become even more undignified. I will be humiliated in my eyes You see, to be humiliated before God is dignifying for David. It's not dignifying for Michael because for her, worship is all about exterior appearance. You have to look a certain way, you have to behave a certain way, and this, this this is not what you do before God. But in fact, David's the complete opposite. I will become even more humiliated because All of God's promises are yes and amen. It is a picture of just uninhibited, free worship. And at this moment, there's all the music and song. And David not only offered to Israel so many of the Psalms, which shaped their times of prayer and praise, but David, being a skilled musician himself, brought all the musicians together, all the instruments, and he made worship with music become a central part of Israel's worship of God. The ark is now in Jerusalem. At this point, it's in a temporary tent. Uh, But music becomes very prominent in Israel's worship of Yahweh. Psalm 211 offers us an insight into the type of worship that is God-honouring... Serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. Rejoicing is what we see with David is in no way um, isolated from having a healthy fear of who God is in his holiness. We see the two coming together, a really healthy fear for the holiness of God should actually produce within us um, overjoyed rejoicing. And and David is in the very presence of God and because he's allowed into that presence and because he's experienced the blessing of God and and the experienced um, the faithfulness of God in his word coming true, David can rejoice in that moment. It's a wonderful instruction for worship. This chapter invites us to look back, to look back all the way to Exodus 25 when God's presence began to dwell with his people. And God's people had been nomadic. They'd been living in different places. They'd been fighting against the Philistines. They had a king who was not after God's own heart. And now God's promises to it, to Abraham for Israel to become a, a nation and of that nation to have the root of Jesse, of David, who would become the Messianic line towards Jesus. Um, the kingdom of Israel has been united, restored. Uh, we look back and we see so many of God's promises coming to fruition in this moment. But this also invites us to look forward to that wonderful time when the greatest worship leader of all will bring together all of God's people and we will celebrate in the wedding feast of the Lamb and we will rejoice like never before because God has fulfilled his promises. This text invites us to look back at the faithfulness of God to his people, but it invites us to look forward in a... Um, eschatological that means an end time sense it propels us to look forward to that day when Jesus who worships on our behalf as the perfect worship leader who made the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf celebrates and dances because the kingdom of God is going to be inaugurated it's absolutely awesome And that is 2 Samuel chapter 6. Shall we pray? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the perfect worship that you offered up on our behalf your worship and your sacrifice was completely and entirely acceptable to God, your Father. That all who put their faith and trust in you will receive the righteousness and the blessing of you and your Lordship. We thank you for this text, which um, we've taken a bit of a journey with this morning, and we've seen some different ways that we can come to your presence I pray, God, that we would not be a people who come into your presence casually or flippantly or irreverently with disregard for your word. I pray that we would not be a people who come into your presence with contempt and spite for circumstances that may not have gone our way, for disappointments in our life that have been out of our control. I pray that we would not come into your presence caring only about the external. I pray that we would be a people who would first honour and know you and your word and worship you in reverence and trembling as a holy God. And may we know how to celebrate with the joy and the energy and the life and the freedom the type of worship that we may consider to be something only to be done in private, and here we see it being done in full view of public. Pray that we might become um, heartfelt um, worshippers who worship you not just in our hearts, but give great expression to that worship in the way that we live our lives in the way that we bring ourselves and our offerings to you. May it be done not in the spirit of Michael or Saul, uh, not in the spirit of Uzzah. May it be offered in the spirit of Obed-Edom, more importantly, the spirit of David, who danced before you with all his might. Make us these type of worshippers, we pray, for your name's sake. And we look forward to that glorious day when you will dance before us and we will dance with you. In Jesus' name, amen.